Before we jump into the study of the morning, I just want to have a heart-to-heart with us as a church family. You may have gotten or noticed the email we sent out this week about VBS. That's going to be the way we operate here. We never want to pull a Sunday surprise and get up and announce something without letting you as our church body know first. And as you saw in the email, we are going to be canceling VBS this year. Um, As you know, Heather has been one of the uh, key factors. She has run and oversaw and put Vacation Bible School together for us the last few years. And and last year she came to me and she said, Pastor Greg, I'd, I'd like to get a team together and train someone to take over for me and we said that would be awesome uh we me myself and i uh, we uh, i said that'd be awesome and and she said great and so she put a team together and they began working on it and we she was going to mentor the people this year and next year they were going to take it over well with uh, as you know her health issues uh, we decided i went to her and her team and said can we still do vbs with with what has just occurred and uh, and so they met and they came back and they said we would make a recommendation to you pastor greg if you would would you consider canceling it and i said yes yes we we will because we're only a month away from launch and there's still a ton of work to do and as a children's former children's pastor I know the amount of work that VBS takes. And one of the things that we do here is we value people over programs. And I'm not going to take and sacrifice someone to the wolf of VBS, which is what we would be doing if we were trying to dump something at this late date on someone. So we're going to take a break this year. Now everything we've purchased, everything we've we've gotten and assembled so far we'll just do next year the team will take its time to be trained this will give heather a chance to uh, regain her strength and then begin training the people that are going to take over for her it'll just make it better and uh, more wonderful for next year but i just felt that was what we needed to do at this time and if you have concerns on that i would be glad to hear from you on that and share with you more in depth our reasoning if, if, if that would be of help to you. But I just wanted to share that to you and let you hear that from me. Now, you might remember it was, it was all over the television. It was a very striking picture. It was an ocean liner on its side. I mean, how often do you see that? It was just a few years ago, it was the Italian cruise liner Costa Concordia, and it had capsized and sank, and it was on its size. And what made it even more interesting was the captain abandoned ship before the people did. Do you remember that? Remember that story? They, They were going next to an island, 
And they went way too close because one of the things the captain wanted to do was there was a friend on the island and he wanted to take his ship and he wanted to put it right next to the island and then blow the ship's horn and make them come out and go hey and wave at each other and have just a great time. And so he takes this big cruise liner, 4,500 passengers, and he goes right next to the shore. And he hits a hidden reef. And that hidden reef rips out the side of the, of the boat. The boat begins to fill with water. It begins to list to one side. Pretty soon it's going over to one side. The captain tells the crew to tell the people, oh no, no, we got this under control. There's no problem. There's no problem. And they don't tell the Coast Guard. You know how the Coast Guard found out? The passengers called. Not the captain, not the crew. And the captain realized his mistake so bad, and instead of maritime law, which says he has to be the last man off the ship, he changes clothes, put on civilian clothes, and snuck off with the passengers. <sighs> Tragedy self-serving was tried uh, in a court of law for the 32 people who died that day all because he wanted to blow the horn for a friend all because he wanted to hide from his mistake you say pastor why are you starting with such a morbid story because that's where jude starts with us this morning if you have your bibles turn with me back to the book of jude and you're going to look back with us to verse 12 Jude is talking about the false teachers. He's talking about those who are trying to steal their faith. He's talking about those who want to destroy them. And he uses a very similar word. Notice what he says. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Now some of your Bibles may have translated it blemishes but it literally means hidden reefs or underwater rocks. The rocks that would rip up and destroy a boat. Paul talks about this in, in the book of uh, 1 and 2 Timothy when he talks about how there are people whose faith have been shipwrecked. Faith who's been destroyed. And so Jude's warning here, these false teachers are out to destroy your faith. But notice how they do it. They're not overt. They're not people who come out and say, hey, uh, hi Bill, I want to destroy your faith today. Uh, can I talk with you? They don't do it that way. They're hidden. They're sneaky. And so they do it in the place that should have been the safest in the middle of the church. They do it in the middle of the love feast. You see, the early church did communion a little bit different than we do communion. Now, uh, you say, how did they do it different? Well, they always started it with a potluck. They always had a big feast first. All in favor of restarting that, say, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, they had a, amen, yeah, yeah, they had this big feast first. Why? Because it was to tell the world that they were one in Jesus Christ. It didn't matter the color of your skin. It didn't matter whether you were slave or free. It didn't matter whether you are rich or poor. The early church shouted, by these love feasts, we are one in Jesus Christ. And so they would gather. And in those days, there was a big gap between the rich and the poor. There wasn't really much of a middle class. And so for many of the poor, these love feasts would be the one great meal they would get a week. And the rich would come and they would bring from their bounty. The poor would come and they'd bring from their meager supplies, but it didn't matter. They would put it all at the table and they would sit and they would eat together. And the world would look on and say, that's what it means to be one in Jesus Christ. And then after they would eat, those who had been baptized would take communion. You said, what? Yeah, we do a little different. We don't require that you be baptized. But in the early church, they would require that you would be baptized before you took communion. Because baptism is a symbol of belonging to the body of Christ. It is the symbol of the new covenant. And so what they would do is they would have you be baptized. But you see, they didn't, they didn't wait. If, if I made a decision, you know, if, if, if Steve came up to me and said, Greg, I want, I want to accept Jesus Christ today, I'd say, great. Okay, now that you accept Him, you're ready to get baptized. And it was like, boom, boom. They would do it. They had to be baptized immediately, declaring to the world that they are followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, that was the testimony. The testimony was their baptism. You know what? Next month, we're going to have a baptism. We're going to go down to the park. We're going to get into that nice cold water with fish that like to bite your toes. And we're going to get, no, no, we're going to get in that water. And we've already got nine people signed up for baptism. Would you like to make it ten? Would you like to make it eleven? If you've never been baptized, I'd encourage you. Join us next month. Come talk with me about it. We would love for you to stand with your brothers and sisters and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ and I want the world to know. And so they would have communion together after and so they would they would do that but these false teachers have crept in and they start whispering they start going why are you sharing with the poor why are you sharing with those people who don't look like you why are you sharing with slaves why are you doing this? You should keep this for yourself. You should keep this for your favored few. And in 1 Corinthians, we start seeing that the love feast starts breaking down. 
the love feast becomes a war zone. In one corner, you have a group of wealthy people and they're eating to excess and they're getting drunk even. And over here, there's some people who are eating scraps or have nothing and all they can do is look and watch as a group over there is eating in front of them and rubbing it in their face that they, they can't eat because they have nothing. And these false teachers are walking back and forth to the tables of plenty. And notice what it says. They're shepherds who feed themselves. You see, not only are they stirring up dissension, but they show their true heart. They're all about themselves. I want you to get this. A shepherd's job is not to feed himself. You see, this is a, a almost sarcastic comment. A good shepherd feeds the sheep. A good shepherd makes sure the sheep are taken care of. A good shepherd's about the flock. A good shepherd doesn't walk around and take the tastiest morsels for themselves. That's not what they do. And Jude's saying, watch out! These false teachers, you want to know who they are? They're the ones who navigate where you're supposed to be safe. And you want to know what's going to reveal them? They're going to be all about themselves. They're all going to want what they want for themselves. In fact, the love feasts got so bad that by the second century, the church abandoned them. The church stopped doing them. Because these false teachers had come in and destroyed what had been a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. Notice what else it says here. They are clouds without rain. Blown about by the wind. What an amazing picture. Now, how many of you are born and bred Minnesotans? All right. Here's the thing, you born and bred Minnesotans. You don't know what a drought looks like. Don't tell me, well, you know, some, some years we've only gotten 20 inches of rain. You don't know what a drought looks like. I'm from California. I'm from the Central Valley, which is desert. I know what a drought looks like. And I know what it's like when you watch the clouds blow in and you're hoping that they have rain in them. And you look up and you start praying, Lord, could, could those have rain? The ground is parched, it's broken, the crops are dying. Lord, could, could that be rain? And you watch them blow on by. It's a destroyer of hope. What he's saying here is, a false teacher destroys your hope. A false teacher destroys your belief. 
They're like empty clouds. They promise, but they don't deliver. And notice they're blown along by the wind. They have no anchor. They have no purpose. They just blow around. This is also a secondary picture here. Uh, in, in Jewish culture, there was a belief system that these uh, were also the picture of the spirits. In other words, they were empty clouds from the land of the spirits, of evil spirits. That there is no hope in them. That just as the demonic would want to destroy these false teachers are blown around by those demonic spirits giving only empty promises of the pit. And then he goes on. He says, they're like autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. Don't you love Minnesota in the fall? Growing up in California, we were, it was great. Fruit stands, food stands. But you know the one fruit they can't do? Apples. They just don't have the right climate for apples. So we would get those Washington red, mushy, squishy, supposedly delicious apples. You're all laughing. Yeah. You know the ones you cut open and they're turning brown as you're cutting them? You put them in and it's like eating mashed potatoes. There's no crisp. And I remember the very first time we came to an orchard in Minnesota in the fall. We drove in and I discovered the honey crisp. Oh my goodness. Off the tree. Oh. And they go, oh, you don't want that one. That one's the second. What, what do you mean it's the second? Well, it's, it's a little small. I got a little. I don't care. I'll love it and keep it. It's mine. You know? And then those zingers. And the Zestars. And then I found out the U of M has created like 39 different kinds of apples. Oh! Once you, once you eat one of those off the trees, you never go back to Red Delicious. I'll tell you that. Why? Because it's good. But occasionally you'd walk through the, those orchards and you'll find a tree that's empty. I remember talking to Mr. Deerdorf. He owned, he owned the, the orchard. Mr. Deerdorf said, that, that, that tree's empty. He goes, oh, yeah, that one got a disease. It got, got something. It, it, it's, it's dying, so it had no fruit this year. Ah. But we'll, 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 we'll fix it. We'll fix it. It'll, it'll come back next year. It'll have fruit. But notice what he's saying. Notice what Jude says. Twice dead. Not only does it not have fruit, but it's uprooted. 
Now, for my non-farming friends, I want to, you know, those of you who grew up in the city, I want to explain this to you. If the tree don't have its roots in the ground, it's dead. Okay, we got that? That's farming 101. If it's not in the ground, it's dead. And you know what it means if it's dead? There's no future. Not only can, it not, can they not deliver now, they're never going to deliver in the future. Their false teaching will never deliver in the future. They may promise, but look at their roots. They're on the wrong place. They're twice dead. Many times the message of a false teacher not only kills the spirit, not only kills the hope, but it kills your faith. Twice dead. Twice dead. Then it goes on. They're wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. I said, what does that mean, Pastor Craig? Minnesota is very blessed here. We have so many, so many lakes. What is it? Uh, 12,849 or something like that. In California, we had man-made lakes. You know the difference between a Minnesota lake and a man-made lake? Man-made lakes are dirty. Because you know they just put a dam up, and what was ever there was there, and and it's and it's dirty, and and so you you know you you look in the water and it's green, you can't can't see anything, and but you want to know what's in your lake when the wind starts whipping it, and it starts whipping it, and it starts making it foam, and it starts getting the waves in the lake going and going. It reaches down and pulls what's ever on the bottom and pulls it up to the top. And that's when you get to see all the trash. That's when you get to see all the crud. All the yuck. He says, here's the thing about false teachers. As they get going with what they're talking about, they're going to eventually reveal their hearts. And they're going to reveal the dirt in their hearts. They're going to show who they really are. They're going to show the evil that dwells within them. They're going to show their shame. They're wandering stars. Now, here's when the Bible talks about stars, most of the time it talks about them, they're in their courses, they have their path. A wandering star, you and I would call a meteorite. Have you ever seen a meteorite fall? Any of you? Yeah, raise your hand. Have you seen a meteorite fall? Okay, they fall. What do you see? A bright light as they burn up. And then darkness. The false teacher may be a bright light for the moment. False teacher may shine. But guess what? They're going to burn out. And not only do they burn out, but because of what 
they are teaching. They're going to a place where darkness has been reserved forever. Notice the pictures here. The hidden reef speaks of the danger of the false teacher. The empty cloud speaks of their empty promises. The twice-dead tree speaks of the barrenness of the words. The wild waves reveals their true character. And the wandering stars reveals their ultimate destruction. And notice how this is such a contrast to our Jesus. Where the false teacher is the hidden rock of destruction, Jesus is our rock of salvation. Where the false teacher is a barren cloud, Jesus will come in the clouds again to refresh His people and return them. Where the tree of the false teacher is dead with His fruit in its season. Instead of the wild and churning waves that bring up the shame, Jesus leads us behind, beside the still water. He calms the seas. He walks on the seas and the seas He is the Master of. Instead of the darkness of the wandering star, Jesus is our bright. This is a loss when we trade the truth of the Scriptures, the truth of God for the sweet sounds of the false teacher. Look at verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone and convict them all of all ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow on their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Jude brings us to another strange section. But this was a very well-known section in its day. We find this Enoch, this is the Enoch, a godly man, that he didn't die. He just, one day he was on earth, the next day he was with God. There was no death. There was a book written later called the Book of Enoch. We call it a pseudopigrapha. That means a false writing or a false named writing because he didn't write it. But there was a quotation that was given for him and this is the quotation. And while this quotation is considered Scripture because we find it in the book of Jude. We do not consider the book of Enoch Scripture. But I want you to see something here. This is a prophecy about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is returning. Notice it says He's turning with the thousands upon thousands of His holy ones. These are His angels. These are the redeemed who, have, who are with Him. And He comes to execute something. He comes to execute His judgment. Now notice there's a word there. It says He is coming. Most of your translations uh, may say He came. What? Why would one say he's coming and the other one say he came? Did someone just not know how to make a translation? No. There's a certain way, word and there's a certain way in the Greek that you can translate something if it is considered a done deal. So why it may be future in its tense, He is coming, 
This is one of those that fall in the done deal translation. In other words, you can take it to the bank. It's not going to change. It is going to happen. What is going to happen? Jesus is going to return, and He's going to return, and He is going to return. I want you to get this. I want you to see what this means for you and I as believers. We can take complete assurance that this is absolutely certain. It will happen. It cannot be changed in any way. That for you and I as believers, Jesus is coming back. And when He comes, it is written in stone and it will happen. And secondly, when He comes, He will bring justice. We live in a world today where everyone is going, there's so much injustice around us. But when Jesus comes, friends, there's nowhere for the guilty to hide. Because He's bringing perfect judgment of God. There's no slick lawyer that's going to get them off. When He comes again, get this, only the guilty will be innocent. God knows everything. So there will never be an innocent man or an innocent woman judged wrongly. There will never be a false conviction. There will never be a horrible decision that will cause people to take to the streets and protest. For all of God's decisions will be right and just and revealing. And it says that He will come and He will judge. And notice what He judges. He will judge the ungodly for all their deeds of ungodliness. He will judge them for the things that they have spoken. He will judge them for what they have done. And then He goes back and He continues this this picture of the false teachers. That they are grumblers. The word here is murmur it's the same word in the old testament as god used to describe the israelites they murmured does that sound like a bunch of people complaining i mean think about it say it with me just say it with me murmur one two three murmur and i just murmur it's just kind of that's what they were doing They were grumbling. They were complaining. They were continually discontent. It's the picture of cows continually mooing nonstop. It is this underground swell of discontent. Notice then it says they're fault finders. The word means to blame someone else about your fate. They were people who blamed God for their fate or lot in life. They were never satisfied with God. They were never happy. They never knew peace. They never knew contentment. If something was wrong in their life, it was always someone else's fault. Do you see the progression? Cain didn't like God's decision about his sacrifice, so he blamed Abel. Kor didn't like God's choice in leadership, so he blamed Moses. Balaam didn't like God's plan, so he blamed the donkey. The fallen angels didn't like their role in the world and the leadership of God, so they blamed and followed Satan. Israel in the promised land and Sodom and Gomorrah 
with God's plan for humanity. All murmured. All found fault. All went to God and ended up with their own destruction. Notice next, it says, all followed their own evil desires. They can't help it. It's a habit. It's who they are. It's the idea that it's a rut that they've put in the ground. They have walked it so often they keep digging a deeper and deeper rut that they cannot, cannot get out of. And so they follow what's right in their own eyes. Notice that also they boast about themselves. They are the sun of their own solar system. Everything revolves around them. They are so full of sound and fury, and, but they amount to nothing. But they are the God of their own creation. Notice that they manipulate. They manipulate people with their words to get what they want. Their words sound good on the surface, but when you look deeper, the arrogance and the self-worship drips from it. I recently was sent an article from someone in our church family to, who asked me to help them walk through it. And this article compares spirituality to religion. And the surface read makes it compelling, but when you dig deeper and you replace the word religion with a deep, life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ, it begins to fall apart. It begins to crumble and it begins to seem petty when it's compared to the magnificence of God and His love for us. And many of the attacks on our faith are impressive and powerful, but when we take the time to truly look, we often see the arrogance of the writer as they stand and shake their fist at Almighty God. Hear me clearly, believer. God has no problem with you if you have a heartfelt question. God loves you to come to Him. God has no problem if you come and say, I'm struggling, Father. He honors your pure heart that seeks Him. The pure heart that says, I don't understand. I don't get it. I'm confused. But the heart of arrogance, the heart of pride, the heart that wants to manipulate is not the heart that God hears. It is not the heart that will stand. The false teacher cannot help but be consumed with self-serving, arrogant heart. So what do we do? What's the difference? How do we apply this for you and I as believers? Oh friends, how do we apply this? Number one, anchor your soul in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is your food. It is your bread. We must know it. We must love it. We must long for it. We must guard our hearts so that we will not lose it. You see, every generation has to fight for the Gospel for itself. There's a four-step process that tends to take place. First, we accept the Gospel, but then we start to assume the Gospel. We start to just assume the Gospel. We, we don't, we've stopped accepting it. We've stopped being changed by it. We just say, yeah, it's there. And then we become confused with the Gospel because we're not as loving of the Gospel, because we're not as eating the Gospel, we're not drinking the Gospel, we're not sleeping the Gospel, we're not breathing the Gospel, because it is not our meat, 
we start becoming confused when the gospel is challenged. And before you know it, our gospel is lost. Well, friends, hang on to the gospel. Secondly, be a person of Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly. Make up your mind to be a person who lives justly. And to love mercy. Are you a person of mercy? Are you a person who seeks to give mercy to others for a false teacher won't? And lastly, to walk humbly with your God. Do you walk humbly with God? As we look at the characteristics of the false teacher, we need to look at our own hearts. Do I promise things not deliver? Am I filled with self-serving arrogance? Am I, am I a person who can't take responsibility for my lot in life? Am I always blaming others? Am I manipulative? Or am I a person who walks humbly with my God? Well, what difference will it make, Greg? Oh, the difference is is called freedom. One of our early church fathers was a man by the name of Chrysostom. And he was arrested by the Roman emperor for his faith. He was tried. He was tortured. And they went to make him renounce Jesus Christ as Lord, and he wouldn't. Finally, the emperor went to his guards and he said, throw him into prison. One of the guards said, that wouldn't be punishment, for he delights in the presence of his God in quiet. So the emperor said, execute him then. Another guard said that would not be punishment because he believes he will go to heaven upon death. And another guard finally said, the only thing you can do to give him pain is to make him sin. If you can make him sin, you will cause him great pain and misery. But sir, you can't. Why? Because he was free. He was anchored in the gospel. He was a man who loved justice. He was a man who loved mercy. He was a man who walked humbly with his God. May I ask that you take a moment. We're going to have a reflection video. Take a moment and just think through where you're at and what's going on in your life.